Good morning, everyone. Uh, really good to see everybody who's able to be here this morning. We're going to be continuing uh, Acts 8 through 12. Uh, on the theme of seeing portraits of Jesus's dominion. Um, and I mentioned this last week, but the reason I've titled this particular series this way is um, in Acts 8 through 12, we see a lot of very personal uh, conversions. So earlier in the chapter, we saw Samaria being reached by Philip. And in Samaria, the uh, narrative focused particularly on a man named Simon, who was a magician in that area being converted. In this half of the chapter, we have a eunuch from Ethiopia. Chapter 9, we see Saul, who uh, was in hearty agreement with Stephen's uh, stoning in chapter 7. And then chapter 8, Saul began ravaging the church, and uh, an open and very focused persecution began against the saints in Jerusalem and around that region. Saul is then converted in chapter 9. And at the end of chapter 9, we see uh, Peter again, along with some uh, more well-known events, like in verse 36, Tabitha, or also named Dorcas, being risen from the dead. Chapter 10, we have Cornelius and his household. And then chapter 11, uh, at the end of that chapter, after Peter defends what God had done with Cornelius to the Jews who confronted him, it may not be like a personal... Uh, narrative in terms of individuals, but at the end of chapter 11, we have the church at Antioch, and I think Antioch serves as a great portrait of a New Testament church, and it kind of becomes the hub of the spread of the gospel in some ways, almost like a, a new Jerusalem in some senses. And then in chapter 12, we see Peter being freed from prison when Herod uh, had beheaded James, another apostle. So portraits of Jesus' dominion, a lot of personal examples. Now, with this section of chapter 8, I want you to think for a minute, have you ever seen someone, and I, and I hope you have, uh, someone who is converted to the gospel, and when you were either involved in their conversion or you were close to them, maybe you're just a member of the church where that happened, maybe it was here, and you saw in their conversion that they were just hungering and thirsting for God's word, his righteousness, that they were, it's like they were asking all of the right questions, they had such a great zeal for God to obey him. And after their conversion, they had this zeal that inspired you and even convicted you and made you think, you know, where did that zeal go for me? <laughs> and maybe there's some things in me that I can learn from seeing this person's conversion. And I want to encourage you to see this section of the book of Acts that way, to really treat this as, as real, that we see a conversion of a person here who asked all the right questions, who had an incredible amount of zeal for God, and although we don't follow him back to his home in Ethiopia, uh, it seems heavily implied that God was entrusting him uh, to go back in good standing of faith. So we'll be looking at the Ethiopian eunuch uh, this morning in verse 26 through 40, as we read in the scripture reading. Kind of an interesting contrast as well. Uh, up to this point, we've seen a consistency of miracles in the apostles and people who had contact with the apostles. So Philip, we know earlier in the chapter, could do and did miracles. He amazed the people of Samaria. Philip, or rather Simon, the magician, saw the miracles Philip was performing, and the people who followed Simon and were amazed by Simon saw Philip's miracles and obviously heard his teaching. And they could all see, including Simon, that what Philip was teaching and doing was genuine and superior to anything that Simon had been doing before. And so Simon believed and was baptized. Whereas in this section, there are no miracles. 
So it's still Philip, but Philip performs no miracles. The eunuch believes and is baptized, but not because of seeing any miracles. And he goes all the way back to Ethiopia, not seeing any miracles. And I'm sure uh, Philip would have maybe mentioned that in preaching about Jesus, but it certainly is not a point of emphasis here for his faith. So that's just an interesting contrast to take note of. So what I'm going to do is structure this lesson a little bit differently than last week. I'm going to talk through the narrative and just make some points about the narrative. And then at the end of the lesson, we'll look back and kind of reflect on some personal lessons we can take from the eunuch's example. But I want to start with Isaiah 56. You don't need to turn here in your Bibles. I put it on the board. Uh, God in the book of Acts is fulfilling many prophecies and even patterns of events we've seen before. So, for example, I think Acts is like the new book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, they went in to conquer the land of Canaan, and they conquered some good bit of it, but really there were large sections of the land that literally were never conquered. So in some ways, Israel kind of failed in conquering the land of Canaan. We especially see that play out in the book of Judges, where it says they lived among the Canaanites, actually, as one generation passed from Joshua. Whereas in the book of Acts, we see them succeeding on a grander scale in this new conquest in one generation. In a sense, they're conquering not with swords and shields, but with the sword of the spirit. Land that in the Old Testament they failed to conquer, in the New Testament they are succeeding to go out and conquer with the gospel. So Isaiah 56 is a prophecy that I think is is helpful to take note of. This is where God is, is looking forward, as is the case in much of Isaiah. Isaiah is just a book that speaks a great deal about Jesus and the new covenant. It it turns out this is the book that uh, the eunuch was reading in verse uh, 32 and 33. But a little later in Isaiah 56, it says, Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. This matters because in Deuteronomy chapter 23, eunuchs were excluded from the General Assembly of Israel. What all that meant, technically, I'm not sure. How far could they go in the temple? I don't know. How much association would they be able to have with the Jewish people? But the eunuch would not have been a Gentile. The Gentiles aren't reached until Acts chapter 10. So either this was uh, a born Jew, someone who was born Jewish, and just ended up a eunuch uh, as he grew older in the service of royalty in Ethiopia, or it was a proselyte. But the fact that he's a eunuch would mean that in the Jewish culture, he would be excluded from the General Assembly of Israel and not able to enter into the closest areas of the temple where the circumcised would be able to go and have fellowship. So verse 26, I'll read 26 through 31, and this will serve the first part of our narrative here. God tells Philip first through an angel, and then the spirit in verse 29 also communicates with Philip to join the chariot. But suffice it to say, God tells Philip to go south, to meet this Ethiopian eunuch who is returning home after having worshipped in Jerusalem. So I'll read 26 through 31 again. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. I want you to consider how carefully God had been watching this eunuch. You know, imagine the eunuch's in Jerusalem. God has said nothing yet. And as he's leaving, you know, God then communicates with Philip, you need to go south to this desert road. This would have been a miles, a miles. It would have been many miles worth of traveling for Philip. And I kind of imagine Philip doing this on foot. This may just be my own imagination, filling in things the wrong way. Maybe he rode an animal. Suffice it to say, this would have been many miles worth of traveling to get from where he was in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, to then travel urgently south to go where God had told him to go. And it's just imagine God connecting these dots, how much he loved the eunuch, that by the time Philip gets there, what do you know? He's reading what is one of the most perfect places in the scroll of Isaiah to teach Jesus. And you imagine God seeing this, that if Philip gets here at just this time, the eunuch is going to be reading exactly this passage, and it's going to create the perfect opportunity. Do you think God is as interested providentially in connecting faithful people with others who are seeking him? You know, God may not like, you know, speak to us directly in this way, but I certainly think what this reveals is God has a habit of trying to utilize faithful people who want to teach and connecting them to people in their area who are open and willing to learn. This is something that really encourages me a lot um, in this community. So, and the eunuch's love for God, I think, and his word and his people is just tremendous. There are so many things that we can learn from this Ethiopian's attitude toward God and his attitude toward his word. I want you to think, just to get to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, this may have been 1,000 miles that he had to travel to get to Jerusalem. Now, this may seem like a silly illustration. I don't mean it irreverently. I know a family in Indiana where they consider Disney to be their home. These are Christians. It's not, it's not a bad thing. I don't think they idolize Disney World, but they love going there. They have lots of memorabilia from Disney in their home up in Indiana. They've got statues of Disney characters. Like, they just, they really love Disney. And it's, they consider it to be the most magical place on earth, just as they advertise. And when they go, of course, they're wanting to bring some money with them to really bring back some tokens of the experience, right? Uh, and they, they consider Disney their home because it's this happy, magical place. Think about the eunuch. I think to him, Jerusalem, and I don't mean to be irreverent, to him, I think Jerusalem was the most magical place on earth. There is no place like Jerusalem. And again, this may just be my mind filling in blanks, but I would get the impression that as someone of authority and monetary ability, he came to Jerusalem to get a souvenir. And I think what he's reading is that souvenir. Isaiah is one of the most expensive scrolls you could have gotten. And writing a scroll by hand, that is a task. I've written some books of the Bible, small ones. It makes your hand hurt. It takes hours. Even a book like 1 Peter, five chapters, it takes hours to write 1 Peter. Isaiah is 66 chapters. 
It would take a scribe hours upon hours to write that scroll. It was a very expensive thing to purchase a scroll like that. And so the eunuch, I think, it's a great illustration of someone who loves God making incredible sacrifices to be wherever God's people are. And in an Old Testament period of time, as things are transitioning here, as a proselyte or as a Jew, this to him would have been the happiest and most magical place to go. And making a sacrifice of a thousand miles to get there, I'm imagining to him, was nothing to go. Do you think he had to have some conversations with the Queen of Ethiopia about this? that maybe he would need to be fairly insistent about this. That he maybe would need to enforce priorities that she may not have understood. It's worth considering. He wasn't put off by the exclusion in Deuteronomy 23. Again, as a eunuch, I don't think he's a Gentile again. This is either a proselyte convert or someone born Jewish who just eventually ended up as a eunuch Um, But he certainly was excluded in many ways from participating in many of the things in Jerusalem. You know, again, the Disney illustration. If I went to Disney and someone told me, well, you know, because of where you're from and who you are, you can't see about 80% of the park. You know, you can go to like the outer areas, but a lot of those like roller coasters and really cool rides, like you're actually not allowed to go to those things. I would think, well, okay, that's a waste of my time then. You know, if I can't get the full experience. The eunuch going to Jerusalem, in a sense, is not getting the full experience as his Jewish brethren. And you have to think, he, he's someone of a high position. So imagine you could think, how insulting. You know, I'm one of the head honchos of the entire nation of Ethiopia. I'm in charge of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. And you're telling me I can't participate in the closer temple worship with my Jewish brethren? No. You see in the Ethiopian eunuch that exclusions in his participation in Jewish fellowship did not deter him one bit. And after worship, you know, so often after assembling with God's people, it's like, okay, that's done. Time to relax. There's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times I'm certainly not motivated to, you know, worship more or read more of God's word, unfortunately. But the the Ethiopian eunuch Worship motivated him to dig deeper, to go further, to read more, to discover more. And so what is he doing in this chariot, seemingly, I would imagine, wobbling on the road? He's reading the prophet Isaiah, and you notice he's reading it out loud because Philip overheard him reading the passage, and he said, do you understand what you are reading? So just to kind of imagine this, the noise of the chariot wheels, the chariot kind of shaking around, And here's this eunuch going through this scroll, reading it progressively out loud. And this may seem like a silly point to make, but he wasn't embarrassed to read it out loud. There would have been other people in his chariot. If you look at verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. As someone of importance, I imagine he had a travel party, and he wasn't embarrassed in the midst of his companions to read this scroll out loud while traveling. And he was humble enough in the way that he responded to Philip, to ask him to join the chariot and teach him. You notice in verse 29, as is the habit in Acts, God doesn't directly do the teaching. Angels don't directly do the teaching. They create opportunities for teaching, which is exactly verse 29, but ultimately it will be Philip who does the teaching. And how did this opportunity come about? Verse 30, do you understand what you are reading? 
Imagine the eunuch could have said, ah, yes, thank you. You know, some stranger on the side of a desert road, you know, approaching you. This could be a thief, you know? But instead he says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited him to come up and sit with him. Philip did not invite himself. The eunuch invited him to come and sit with him. What I think that shows is a great deal of humility and a goodness of heart in the eunuch. Because he was humble in what he was reading and wanting to learn and hungering it and wanting teaching, it created this incredible opportunity. And let's read 32 through the rest of the chapter here, where Philip then from Isaiah 53 preaches Jesus to him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And that's Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, kind of in between 7 and 8, what Scott read for the Lord's Supper. Verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, which in the Old Testament, that's Ashdod. That's southwest of Jerusalem. It would have been um, Old Testament Philistine territory. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, I'll show you guys where this is on a map so you kind of have a better idea of that line of travel. But it's, it's a northern uh, travel when he went to Caesarea. But Philip, from this scripture, preaches uh, Jesus to him. And again, Philip, or the eunuch rather, asks the perfect question in verse 34. You know, it's very natural to ask this question because in Isaiah 53, Although we can read it and see very clearly that it's pointing to Jesus, Jesus is never named in that prophecy. And historically, in Jewish writings we have from before Jesus, there are Jewish commentaries on Isaiah 53, and Jewish commentaries, they didn't know what was going on in Isaiah 53. You know, they didn't know, like, is this, like, you know, Israel as a nation being embodied as a person? You know, it's, it, the Jews were very confused by this passage. So it's very natural to ask, you know, what's going on here? It seems to be talking about a person who's going to suffer and die to redeem people from their sin. But is this Isaiah talking about himself? Is this someone else? What a great opportunity. And so, of course, Philip, very naturally, is able to preach Jesus to him starting there. And he may have explained many other things about Jesus from Isaiah. Again, Isaiah is very rich in illustrating Jesus, who he would be, what he would do, and the effect that his life would have on new covenant people. Isaiah very consistently talks about the new covenant and the kind of people, in principle, new covenant people would be because of this work that this Messiah, this servant would perform. So again, Jesus is taught from the scripture as simple as that is.
And you notice as Jesus is being taught, seemingly out of nowhere in verse 36, the eunuch brings up baptism. Now, I didn't see where Philip was preaching baptism. So what does this imply about baptism? That teaching baptism is inherent in teaching about Jesus. You know, you heard in the scripture reading, not the scripture reading, but in Scott's reading for the Lord's Supper, it would talk about how through the suffering of the servants, he would bear their sins, and through his suffering, he would also justify many. Well, how do we receive that justification? How do we, how do we receive this redemption that this person is accomplishing in Isaiah 53? Romans chapter 6 brings up that it's through baptism that we are joined in with Jesus' death, with his resurrection that we are joined with him in this newness of life or we're able to walk with him in this newness of life. So, of course, as we preach Jesus, we preach salvation that comes through Jesus. And how do we receive that salvation? It's through belief, repentance, confession, baptism. And so in verse 37, or I'm sorry, verse 36, he asks an interesting question. He may be saying, is there anything else that you need to teach me? before I can be baptized. Or he may be thinking about the fact that he was a eunuch and was excluded from many of the privileges of Israel and fellowship with Israel. So he may be thinking, you know, I'm a eunuch. Is this something that I'm excluded from? You know, can I have what you're preaching and what you're teaching? And of course, verse 37, which isn't in all translations, by the way, if you have an ESV, There's just some technical um, manuscript things with old manuscripts and kind of aligning those things. Some don't have verse 37. But it's fair to say, Philip Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he confesses, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he goes down to the water and is baptized. And just kind of as a doctrinal note, something to keep in mind. uh, I've used this and heard others use this, and I think it's, it's important to use this as a proof text that baptism is not sprinkling on the head or just like dunking your head in water while leaving your body unsubmerged. It says in verse 38, they both went down into the water. And then after he was baptized, verse 39, they came up out of the water. And to baptize literally the definition of the word is burial or submersion. So really, it's more because of Catholic tradition and other denominational traditions that the idea of sprinkling or partial submersion more comes from false traditions that don't originate from the Bible, whereas biblically, it's always baptism means submersion slash burial, full submersion in water. So as the Ethiopian comes up out of the water, Philip is snatched away. Uh, A very unique kind of thing. We don't really read about this kind of thing anywhere else in verse 39. This either means like God literally teleported him, which as weird as it is, like I'm prone to believe that's what happened. Or I heard someone bring this up recently as I was studying this this week. Maybe it means something similar to what happened in verse 26 and 29. It could be that God just told Philip to go somewhere else and he urgently went. Um, Either way, I can see both ways, but The eunuch came out of the water, no longer saw Philip, and went on his way rejoicing. How much did the eunuch know here? You know, Philip may have taught the eunuch some things about the church as he taught Jesus to him, but there's no post-conversion teaching. So Philip, as soon as the eunuch was baptized, Philip's gone. So whatever he was taught, that's it. That's all he knows. 
did God allow the eunuch to go back to Ethiopia ill-equipped? Did he let him go back to Ethiopia ill-equipped? Did he set him up to fail? I want you to think back on the qualities of the Ethiopian. He was a proselyte or a Jew. Did he understand the value of God's community? He absolutely did. Do you think he would hold on to what he had been taught? I think he absolutely would. Do you think he would share with others the things he had been taught? Absolutely. Did Philip open up the eunuch's eyes to be able to see in Isaiah how those things are fulfilled in Jesus so that he could continue to read and discover? I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 60 here just really quick. Isaiah 60 is one of those passages that I think, again, talks very clearly about what Jesus would accomplish and what he would create in the people who would come out of him. Chapter 60, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And he goes on to describe how he will glorify his house. He will glorify his people. You notice in verse 19 and near the end of the chapter, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your morning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess my land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty warrior. I, the Lord, will hasten in its time. Look forward in chapter 61, verse 3. This is something Jesus quotes of himself in Luke 4, but notice in verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they, and that is new covenant people, will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Notice in verse 9, Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. The idea is this. Everything after Isaiah 53 is saturated with identity markers that the eunuch could begin to embrace on himself. Things that he would have seen as promises that maybe he wasn't sure how these things would be fulfilled, what that, what that would look like. Instead, he could read them and rejoice knowing he had received the very things that he was now leading. So a map of uh, the travel path of Philip here. Gaza's on the coast to the southwest. That's the southern arrow. Jerusalem's kind of just east in the middle of these uh, arrows. So he goes kind of on a coastline preaching trip where he goes up the coastline to Caesarea. And then 20 years later in Acts 21, when Paul is going to Jerusalem for the last time, it's where he'll be taken into prison and then eventually travel to Rome. On his way to Jerusalem, Paul stops in Caesarea with Luke and they visit with Philip the Evangelist, who is still in Caesarea. The implication is when Philip arrived in Caesarea, that's where he stayed for decades, preaching the gospel, working, notice it says Philip the evangelist. 
And so Caesarea seems to be the place where he planted himself preaching the gospel. So some lessons and reflections, thinking about the eunuch and things that happened here. Think again, with the eunuch being entrusted to go back to Ethiopia, as little as he knew, what he knew, I think it was enough that he was set up to succeed and not to fail. And I'm sure there was a synagogue in Ethiopia where he was from as well, where he could share things with his brethren, return to Jerusalem, and just progressively learn more over time. But the idea is this. If we treasure our fellowship with God and the work that he's done to make that fellowship possible, we will treasure our fellowship with his people. Something interesting in the book of Acts, nobody had to be told that they needed to meet with God's people or have fellowship with them. It's just something that they intrinsically understood already. Because if we really understand the value of what God has done and just what is fundamentally implied by what he's done, that naturally cultivates within us a desire for fellowship, intimacy, and unity with God's people. God's religion is a mission-oriented religion. It's a mission that involves his people coming together as a team to accomplish things, to work together for a purpose. The eunuch, even before he came to know Christ, already saw those things. So it's not as if Jesus is the key exclusively to valuing fellowship with God's people. The eunuch, just knowing God, even apart from Jesus yet, already had a deep appreciation for fellowship with God's people. Why? Why from such great distance? Why when he's excluded from so many things within Israel? Because what we see in the eunuch is he valued what God had done for him. And because he valued that, he valued fellowship with God's people. That's what we see throughout the book of Acts. Christians very naturally, simply understanding in the right way what they were receiving and what they were a part of were intimate with each other, and they worked together. Treasuring and investing in God's word equips us to effectively listen to, be impacted by, and changed by group studies and sermons. You know, it's one of the most, I think, common preaching points, treasure God's word, right? And as I was studying this, thinking like, you know, there's ways, I think, to make that point, but I think there's, there's an angle on this that's very important. The eunuch obviously treasured God's word. He was reading it after worshiping in Jerusalem. And he may have, by the way, have been reading that from chapter 1, which would have taken him hours to get to chapter 53, reading it out loud. It may not be that he just like turned there in his scroll very suddenly, but that, again, he was reading it in order. But what did that do for the eunuch? Having this investment in God's word. What it did was it equipped him to be able to be more impacted by teaching. It equipped him to be more open to conviction. It equipped him to be more effectively changed by what he was hearing. If someone struggles with never changing their life or seeing any change in their lives because of, you know, hearing sermons, it may be because the problem is not, you know, how you're hearing in the event of the assembly, but how little you're investing outside of the assembly. Because if you're investing in God's word outside of assemblies, then the studies we have here, the sermons you hear here, have so much more room to dig more deeply into your heart. It will certainly make you more thoughtful. 
Did the eunuch understand what he was reading? He didn't. I'm assuming there were other things in Isaiah he did not understand as he read along. Was it valuable for him to read those things even without understanding them? And again, you know, easy point to make. We should read God's word even if we don't understand it. But what did that do? It made him more open to hearing it explained, right? There's a way that just reading even what we don't understand can just open us up to listening and just generally hearing God's word more effectively. Now, I can tell the animation for the next couple is going to be weird. You'll have to bear with me. Uh, another point is evangelism is not a co- as complicated as our anxieties tell us it is. This was such a simple conversation, right? Obviously, the Philip would have explained many things about Jesus, but what led up to that was all simple questions, easy questions. So to illustrate this, when even I got married, she had a box with like necklaces and stuff. She had, it was about 10 necklaces with like super long, thin chains that had gotten tangled into a ball. And it was insane. I've never seen a tangle like this. And they're very pretty. They're very nice necklaces. And so I wanted eventually to untangle it. But it took a while to do it for me to be willing to do it. And I think oftentimes that's how evangelism is, is it seems so complicated. When things are complicated, they're intimidating. Satan wants us to see evangelism as this anxiety-inducing, intimidating thing, asking people Bible-related questions, you know, what are they going to say? What are they going to do? But you know what? Oftentimes with these tangles, they happen because of neglect. So Eva hadn't used those necklaces in a long time. They're just sitting there, and somehow they, like, tangled themselves. I don't know. But if we're not involved in evangelism or trying to have effective conversations, it's almost like the anxiety builds more and more, and we become more and more crippled. But oftentimes it's just like a couple pulls, and this knot that seemed impossible, if you just find the right place, so many things become undone and loosened. And I think that's how it is when we try talking to people about the gospel, when we try taking risks to just ask better questions and say things that maybe we're just not used to saying with people. It helps loosen those anxieties progressively. We don't have to be crippled by thinking it's some overwhelming thing to talk to people about the Bible or bring it up. It's, it's really not as intimidating as we think it is. If we just take some risks and work at it, all of those anxieties can actually be completely untangled. So more specifically, what are some practical ways to think about making evangelism more simple? And I think we have it right here, asking engaging questions. You know, asking people spiritual questions is such an easy in to having more spiritual conversations over time. Even just things like, hey, do you go to church? You know, I go to church every weekend. Do you have a church that you attend with? And if they say yes, something like, well, why, why do you go to that church? You know, is it like your family has always gone there? That's just what you're used to. Or have you read the Bible before? You know, I love reading the Bible. You know, I'm reading a gospel right now and I'm learning a lot. Is that something you've done? Have you read a gospel before? You know, just those simple questions where you're not shoving anything down anyone's throat. You're not smashing someone over the head with a baseball bat. It's almost like you're putting the ball in their court and just kind of gauging their interest. That's what Philip did here. He was just gauging the Ethiopian's interest. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? He could have said, yeah, just leave me alone. I'm busy. Okay, that's it. Again, just ask engaging questions. Talk about things you've been learning or been convicted by. 
you know, when you talk to people through the week, you know, if, if you remember what was preached on Sunday, you could talk to someone about something you learned or something you found very interesting in the Bible class. You could share joy of having been with God's people. You know, you could share the joy of having gone to the assembly and maybe there's a song that you just really enjoy singing when you assemble together. Just how meaningful it is to get to worship with God's people fundamentally, take the Lord's Supper. You know, these are all things that, again, if, if you just focus on being deliberate, can untangle anxieties where if evangelism isn't something you're thinking about, just starting with what's a question I can ask, even if it doesn't build this huge conversation, things to someone even at a register in a grocery store as you're waiting for your food to all get scanned, just asking a question in the meantime. And we'll have to wait a second. We'll get there. The last point. And this is, again, with the joy that we've seen here and the joy that we saw previously. Just want to encourage you in this that it's critical that we are deliberate in rejoicing, thanking, and praising God for blessings that are unique to salvation. Notice verse 39. 39. He went on his way rejoicing. This is something we see throughout the book of Acts when people receive the gospel and they really understood what they've gained from God. They go on their way rejoicing. This doesn't need to just be something circumstantial or just when we're initially converted. We're thankful that we've been forgiven. We're thankful that God has cleansed us. And then we just begin to obey. No, I think every day we need to focus our prayers on things that we receive from God that are more exclusive to salvation. Things that a worldly-minded person would not think to thank God for. Yes, it's important to thank God for our houses, our food, our cars, our job, our income, our health. All of those things are great things to thank God for. Our freedom, our country, all those things, great things to thank God for. But are those things that someone who doesn't know God can also be thankful for? I'm not trying to talk down about thanking God for those things. I'm just trying to make the point that there are things that we know that others don't know or don't have that are our highest, largest, most important reason for rejoicing. And those are things that build our, th- our faith in a greater way than just focusing on the physical in our prayers. So I just want to encourage you, as you remember to thank God every day, try to work into your prayers, thanking, praising, and rejoicing for things that come into our lives because of salvation and the hope that we have through salvation. So that's the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and you see that you're lacking these things, that you haven't responded to the gospel like the eunuch, or that you've lost the zeal that we see that Philip and the eunuch had, um, we always reserve a time at the end of our assemblies to bring forward uh, needs that require prayers or for the work of these relationships to rebuild relationships with with the Lord that may be broken. So if there's any need you have this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.